0: Psalm 69, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mindy are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord, God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's son. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and ask that you would speak now to our hearts, that you would give us faith so that as we hear, that we would receive these words and allow these words to shape our hearts. Lord, we don't want to simply learn more about you, but we want to be transformed to become more like you. And we ask now that you would do this very work, Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen. In the Park family, every other year, we um, do a family photo op, and uh, when you have four little children, it's like herding cats, Uh, but it's worse because they're human beings, and so you sort of expect more out of them, but then they behave like cats, so you're not sure how to treat them. Um, And my favorite family portrait is from several years ago before Daniel, the youngest, was born. Because this one captures, really, all three of them and their essence so well. Lydia, the oldest, is sitting there with this plastic smile on her face because she's a bit of a thespian. She knows when to turn it on and when to act. And then there's Hannah. She's got her hands raised. I I don't know what she was doing, but she's got her hands raised, feet crossed, and not a care in the world. And you're like, wow, she really is the hippie of the family. And then you have James, uh, who was only like eight months old at the time. But he was clueless then, and he still is clueless now. You know, he's got this blank look on his face. And you're like, do you even know you exist? You know? <laughs> and in a way, that's how the Messianic Psalms work. You know, last week, today, and in the weeks to come, we are doing a short series on the Messianic Psalms which really gives a window to how the Old Testament Israelites understood the person and the work of Christ, figure who is to come. And as we look into it, our goal really is to begin a new semester, new season of life, focusing on Christ, so that our hearts uh, would hunger for Him, that we would begin as people, who know that we absolutely need him that we would not fall on our resources and experience to say i got this but we would be people who say lord i need you every hour i need you this day i need you and that's my prayer and this psalm that we just read psalm 69 gives us a window into who Christ is going to be. That he is this anticipated divine king who will suffer unjustly on our behalf. Now, we do not know the exact historical context or the personal situation that prompted David to write the psalm. But we do know that he is suffering because of his zeal for the Lord. And again, it's important that we begin this new season. I think August for many of us is it's like halftime, right? We were busy working, studying, and now we get a little, little break. We go in our locker room to sort of rest, go back to the drawing board, and sort of plan out the rest of the calendar year. And for those of you working, it might be going back to where you left off. For the students, it might be gearing up for another semester of classes and exams and projects. But I think it's important that we keep Jesus in the very forefront of our hearts as we do so. And really begin with him on our hearts. My prayer is, as one of the church fathers once wrote, that we would hunger for the living bread. And long to feast upon him. That we would be thirsty for the fountainhead. And long to drink from him still. And as Christians, it's important that we live in this tension. Yes, we have found Christ, the bread of life, who gives us living water. Yet we hunger and thirst for him every day. And I pray that this would be the very desire of our hearts as we look into this text. And I really think this is what Apostle Paul meant when he said, I have fought the good fight. At the end of his life, as he looks back at his journey, he's able to say, I fought the good fight. What does that mean? I believe it means that he held on to this gospel. That his heart never grew weary of Christ. And his message never grew stale. And how much we need to be challenged in that way as Christians here tonight to know that we absolutely need him. And we want to be faithful till the very end. And in order for us to do that, Christ has to be the very, the very center of our vision and desire. So what do we see about Christ tonight? Two things quickly. First is Christ's humility. Christ's humility. The psalm opens with David's desperate plea for deliverance from his enemies that threaten to overtake him. David uses a biblical mer- metaphor of troubled waters to describe his suffering. The language and the imagery here in verses 2 and 3 reminds us of Jonah's story in Jonah chapter 2 where he prayed a similar prayer as he was being overwhelmed by the waves and felt like he was drowning. And when you compare the two stories, David suffering because of his righteousness and Jonah suffering because of his sin, you realize suffering is a common place in all of our lives. None of us are immune from suffering. And it doesn't take much to feel overwhelmed, does it? For the stay home moms trying to stay engaged another hour with their demanding two year old, it's tough. To a worker trying to meet yet another deadline, having to put up with that co worker again for another day, it could feel overwhelming. For a student gearing up for another year of classes, and for some of the younger, Kids joining us, trying to survive this worship service. It feels like suffering. And it doesn't take much because subjective, uh, suffering is subjective. And without the thread of God's larger story of redemption that brings all the pieces of our lives together, suffering becomes meaningless. Here, David Brooks, a writer for the New York Times, said, when suffering is not understood as a piece of a larger process, it leads to doubt, nihilism, and despair. But we as believers have this hope that God does not waste our suffering. Remember what Apostle Paul said, God uses all things, all things, for his glory, and for our good. You see, the Ark of redemption reaches beyond just our good days and gives meaning and dignity to all the other days in our life. It's like putting together Legos, right? You buy this box of Legos, you bring it home, you open it up, and you pour it in the living room, and it's just... Squares, circles, rectangles, and you're thinking, what is this? And you go through the manual, you look at the picture, and you do that again and again. And after three days, you come up with something. A spaceship, pirate boat, whatever. And the gospel tells us that God is the master builder. That he uses all the pieces of our lives to make us like Christ in his moral beauty. that's comforting, isn't it? Because many of us here tonight, we look back at even just this calendar, and we have many days where we're like, what was that? Days that left us confused. Days that left us hopeless. Days that left us faithless. And we look back at those days and we ask ourselves, what was that? Is God present? Does he know? Does he care? And the gospel says he does. He is committed to working out his story in our lives. And for this very reason, we can have hope in our suffering. That even in the midst of the suffering we go through, we don't find strength in our own hearts to worship God. But we fall back on the gospel that holds us, and we're able to sing praise, just as David does in Psalm 69. And you begin to see that hope in David's prayer as we read on. In verses 13 through 18, David returns to the metaphor, but this time with faith and hope in God's goodness. David prays in verse 13, answer me at an acceptable time before he was demanding to be delivered, but now he entrusts himself to God and his timing. He says, answer me at an acceptable time. In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. He is no longer blinded by the pain that is before him, but he's able to, by faith, look up and see God's abundant goodness and he's able to pray, Lord, save me according to your time and according to your goodness. And the trajectory of David's prayer is such that we expect him to pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. But in verses 22 to 28, David's prayer takes a sharp turn. In verse 23, he prays that there he prays that his enemies would be isolated, that their friendship would dissolve. In verse 24, he prays for physical atrophy. In verse 25, he prays for God's wrath on their family. And in verses 27 to 28, he prays for their death and eternal punishment. And some of you may be thinking, is it okay for us to pray like that for our enemies? Because I got this guy at work. The short answer is no. We can certainly pray for protection and deliverance, but we are to repay evil with good, as Paul said. And later on in John 15, 25, Jesus quotes this very psalm, verse 4, where it says, They hated me without reason. You see, all the Messianic psalms operate on two horizons, and they have two reference. First was David and There was historical fulfillment in his lifetime, but it always pointed us to a divine king who is to come. And later in John 15, Jesus picks up on this psalm, and he says, this psalm was talking about me, the suffering servant who will face all kinds of injustice because of his passion for God. That's me. And certainly Jesus was the suffering servant. Jesus faced alienation from his family early in his ministry. I mean, after all, they thought he was crazy. would it you, if your older brother said, I am the savior of the world. His friend Judas betrayed him with a kiss and the rest fled at the moment of greatest need. He faced persecution from his enemies who brought false charges against him. And even on the cross, his faith in God's goodness never wavered. But the biggest difference between David and Jesus is their prayer for their enemies. While David prayed for justice, Jesus prayed for mercy. And on the cross, as he was experiencing hell itself, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Our salvation This community, our efforts to be in and for this city, to make the gospel known in both word and deed, is the fruit of this very prayer. Jesus, at the moments of greatest suffering, he saw us and our need, and he prayed for that. Why would he do such a thing? Because he is humble. We read, in Philippians chapter 2 earlier in the New Testament reading about Jesus who continued to go lower and lower and lower. He did not stop at a certain point, but he continued to go lower and lower until he could not go anymore. And when James and John asked for positions of power and privilege in the kingdom to come, Jesus replied, the greatest must be the slave of all. You see, Jesus redefined greatness. The idols of Washington celebrate those who lure over people, but Jesus celebrates those who serve. People who are willing to say, yes, I will meet that need, even at greater inconvenience. People who say, wow, I see that person. and It looks like that person needs a friend. These things may never make the headlines in the Washington Post, but it does in heaven. God sees, he recognizes, and he celebrates every time we humble ourselves to serve even the least. You know, election year is just around the corner. And I, like many of you, don't know what's going to happen. But we are called to vote, to pray, and to support our elected officials. And I will continue to do that. But you know what I'm not looking forward to? The campaign ads. These things, quite honestly, make me sick. You know, these ads, they seek to insult and discredit others. And with each week, I think it just gets worse and worse. We, each election, it just gets worse and worse. And people's lives, their stories are turned into sound bites, all to elevate themselves. The people who are asking for our vote, our trust, our confidence, are out there slandering one another. I wonder if they missed something. Jesus said, while the disciples were arguing, over this very same thing because they became indignant. They were angry that James and John would ask for such privileged position and they started arguing amongst themselves. While all that was going on, Jesus quietly stood, took off his outer robe, put a towel round his waist and began to serve. And Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master you and I are called to a life of humble service. and That's what we want to be as a community. We want to be a community where people can come and be themselves without fear of judgment, without fear of shame and guilt, and experience God's welcome. And I hope you felt that in this worship service, that you have a place here You don't have to be a spiritual giant to somehow deserve a seat in this building. But you come just as you are. and We want to love on you and welcome your presence. But we not only want to be a humble community, we want to be a creative community. Humility has to be our disposition. But creativity, I think, has to be our outlet. C.S. Lewis defined humility this way. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And if we're not thinking about ourselves, hopefully we're thinking about others, not in a bad way. Hopefully we're thinking about how we can better serve one another in this community. Hopefully we're thinking about ways that we can serve this city well. And as we think about that and engage in conversation about that, we gain insight and wisdom to how we can actually serve one another well. And I love that about our church. I don't know if it's because we're fairly young still. I don't know if we could say that. Ten years in, we're still young, maybe because of the transient nature of the city, but it always feels like the cement is a bit wet and we're not so wed to something, simply because we have always done it that way. And we would love your input. You got great ideas on how we can better things. We would love to hear from you. We would love your support and prayer as we seek to serve this city and the people within the congregation well. Christ's humility. Second is Christ's sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice. David is bewildered. In verses 6 and 7, David raises the question, if my enemies could insult me with impunity, what about my people? What about my people? But David doesn't realize one of the key mysteries of the gospel, which is that God uses the weak to shame the strong and the foolish things to confound the wise. The weakness of God always serves a redemptive purpose. When Jesus was insulted, mocked, and crucified as a condemned criminal, when that eternal fellowship of the Trinity was broken and God the Father turned his face away, and for those several hours Jesus hung there on the cross, cursed, people said, what a waste. Looks like defeat to me. But the cross served a redemptive purpose. God's weakness is greater than our wisdom and our power. And through his weakness and his death, he was able to secure our salvation. I love how C.S. Lewis put it in the book Chronicles of Narnia. He said, there is a deeper magic from before the dawn of time the witch did not know. If an innocent being willingly offered their life in the place of a traitor's, the deep magic would reverse death itself and restore them to life. Christ humbled himself and he took the low place and died as a substitute for us on the cross. And by doing so, he reversed death itself. What is death? Death is a consequence of sin. But Jesus was without sin. Therefore, death had no power over him. He had to give him up. And again, no servant is greater than his master. And if our master was our slave, and he will continue to serve us even in heaven, How much more should we, as a people of God, embrace this call to serve? But here's the thing. If we are not deeply rooted in the gospel, the call to sacrifice will only be a heavy burden that will guilt us, shame us, and crush us because we could never meet up to that standard. That's why we have to understand, first and foremost, the gospel message This idea that we can somehow start with the gospel and then to graduate onto something greater and bigger, the Bible does not recognize. If anything, over time we grow deeper into our understanding of the gospel. And the message of the cross takes a bigger place in our hearts and a greater impact on who we are. And it's when we understand the gospel. And we drink daily of grace. The call to sacrifice becomes not a burden, but a privilege. But a privilege. Helen Rosevere, a missionary to Congo during its civil war in 1964, was held as a prisoner by the rebel forces for five months, enduring all kinds of suffering. And in a moment of weakness, after being severely beaten, she questioned God, his goodness, and even her own faith. And there, as she lay alone in a dark room, she says God came and met with her. And he enveloped her with his love and reminded her that all of this that she was going through was a privilege was a privilege. Nothing physically changed. But somehow, she was able to see beyond her immediate circumstance and gaze upon Christ and his sacrifice and his love for her. I wonder how many of us, as we serve in various ways in this church and in this city, need to go back to the very first place where we met Christ, the cross and him crucified. And allow that image, that vision, and that message to soak deep into our hearts. Because too often, I think, we treat the gospel, church, like a pit stop. We come, splash of gas, and we're gone. We sing a song. We hear it half the message if we're engaged. And we go back to our work, to our families, to our homes, where we're supposed to live this out. And no wonder some of us lack power. And our testimony is weak because we haven't allowed the message to go deep in our hearts until the call to service becomes a privilege, a badge of honor that we wear, I think it would do us well to sit, to reflect, to pray over these things and let the Spirit minister to our hearts. Practically, how does the gospel move us to serve? When we find our identity and value in the gospel, we become generous with our resource because we don't have to make a name for ourselves and we don't have to achieve self-worth. When you think about it, so much of what we possess goes into making a name for ourselves in this city that we would somehow be recognized, that we would be published, that we would enter into a right circle of friends. But the gospel says you have a name that's greater than anything Washington could ever give you. You are a child of God, his beloved. And if you understand that, these resources become things that you can give away. You hold on to them with open hands because you know you don't have to work for a name. And you don't have to work for self-worth because the Bible gives you self-worth that you could not achieve in a thousand lifetimes. Let me ask you, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that you are his beloved, his child, that you reign on the throne with Christ even now? Do you really believe what the Bible says about you? That you are not simply what you do, how much you have, what you've accomplished, what your resume says about you, but you are a child of God. And if we really understand this truth, I think it would change the way we deal with our resources. I was really blessed to see this past week many of you volunteering to be teachers, to be line leaders, to serve food at Summer Jam. A bunch of little kids who could care less if you were there or not. Because they're going to get their pudding with or without you. But to see so many of you working so hard in messy ways, like, you know, many of you you don't have experience with kids. But to see you try and, and figure things out to connect... I was really blessed because Washington would never recognize things like that, but God does. And that's what God, that's what the gospel does. It frees us. It frees us from the rat race that is Washington so that we can live for something far greater than what this city can ever offer. And I hope that we, as we understand Christ, his humility and his sacrifice, will move our hearts in a way that we would say, God, here I am. I don't have a whole lot to give, but I want to give it all to you. Because after all, this is what life is all about. At the end of the day, when the dust settles, this is what counts. So use me in my gifts, in my resources, and even the things that I'm not very good at. Use me. Glorify yourself and help me to serve the people here and this city well. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your humility and your sacrifice that has made all the difference in our lives. We are not the same because you took the low place and you sacrificed yourself, even your life on the cross for us. And as recipients of this very message, I pray that that we would not simply say yes to receive this message, but that we would in our hearts be stirred and moved to demonstrate this very message to our friends, to our co-workers, to the people in this city. Lord, we know the city needs it. So Lord, we're asking that you would give us gospel confidence that will move us into this city to love and serve it well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.